My guest today is a brilliant bass player and singer-songwriter, most recently known for his work with Steve Hackett and Steve Wilson. He has a new project called The Mute Gods, which releases their debut album, Do Nothing Till You Hear From Me, on January 22nd. I'd like to welcome Nick Beggs. So nice to meet you, man. How you doing? Yeah, I'm very well, and thank you for these interviews. Uh, there's been quite a few. It's been great. Yeah, listen, uh, you're a popular guy. What can I say? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> well, thank you very much. How were your holidays? Time off, I hope you had. Yeah, yeah everything's been great. I mean, I, it's funny, you know, when you're a self-employed person, you, you never really have time off because it's all about, every day is about managing your time and making sure you're being as productive as possible. So I've been busy, even though I've been on holiday or at home, so to speak. Well, here's the thing. So my website is, you know, the Prog Report and it's all Prog related and all that stuff. But you you almost seem new to the genre. You have a whole lifetime of a career with all sorts of different music. And I'm and I'm wondering how many people know that about you or not. Do you get that from this Prog audience that they know all the stuff you've been involved in over your career? I think as a lot of them have an idea about what I've done, um, but probably not to the, quite the extent that I have. I mean, I've been doing this 33 years, so it's, you know, it's, it'd, be, it'd be, I couldn't really expect everybody to know what I've done. Yeah. Let's go back a little bit and, and not go through everything because that'll take forever probably. And you're probably tired of rehashing all of it anyway. But so, so give me a little bit of background, like how you got started, and and obviously you had some early big success with the band. So let's go a little bit about that and and sort of bring people up to speed. Well, I you know from the age of fifteen, that was my decision. I wanted to be a professional musician, but I was streamed for being an artist, an illustrator, or a graphic designer of some some sort. Right. Uh, that was that was because I had a real flair at school for that particular area. And so it, it it seemed that that would be my trajectory in life. But my mother died when I was very young, when I was 17. And uh, my father wasn't around. And I had a younger sister. So while I was at art college, the first year I was at art college, she died. And I formed a band. And I figured I didn't w really want to pursue the career in art because I felt music had a greater pull on me. Hmm. And so I dropped out of art school and I got a job as a trash collector so I could uh, work in the mornings really early because they finished sort of no later than noon really most days. Right, right. And then I would sleep for an hour and then get up and write songs and then rehearse with the band and, t and do gigs. And that went on for a couple of years. Um, and we were very focused, you know. So by the time I was 20, I, I got a record deal and I moved to London. That was with EMI Records. And then by the following year, we recorded our album, first album and our singles released. And, you know, we were having significant success. Um, and it kind of went on from there. To be honest with you, that was strange because it, it seemed like my career has been trying to come out from under the shadows of that success um, and reinvent myself or make a living either or. The, the hardest time for me musically was directly after that band split up. You know, I, 
I, I, I formed another band and got another major record deal in 1987. And that was a project called Ellis, Beggs and Howard. And, you know, it went on like that, sort of step, stepping from one project to the other, trying to uh, make projects work and find a musical voice with them. Until I got to a point where I thought, you know what, I'm just going to focus on being a musician because being an artist is so difficult. And also, I think I had a lot of confidence knocked out of me during the 80s to the point where I got to the 90s and figured, okay, this is it now. I'm a musician and I'm just going to do sessions. I'm going to tour. I'll do whatever's necessary. I even, I taught. I became a lecturer. Um, I would give recitals, solo recitals on Chapman Stick. Um, So, you know, it was... It was sort of portfolio. It was a lot of portfolio work, you might say. And you ended up playing with, I mean, tons of well-known 80s artists. And I guess, did you enjoy that part, sort of being one of the guys that got called in for a lot of sessions and, and maybe building a name as a, as a guy good for that stuff? Well, for a long time, I wasn't really regarded good for anything because I was, <laughs> I was seen too much as part of a band, like the Kajagoogoo project that was so successful. And, no, and you know, people, artists don't really want a featured artist in their band, really. They want somebody who's relatively anonymous. Um, so I, I didn't even get the calls. Um, and for, for a while, you know, I mean, people were saying to me, if you'd been in L.A., man, in the 80s, you would have cleaned up. And I thought, well, you know, I couldn't get a gig in London, let alone L.A. <laughs> um, but I... I then I decided to be to apply for a job as an A and R man, and I got a job working for Phonogram Records, which I really liked. And I was there for a while, but then th- there were three really major events that happened. Um, I got made redundant because a, a new managing director came in. Uh, my first marriage split up. I split up with my wife. And I was hospitalized. And um, I kind of was lying in the hospital bed thinking, well, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Where am I going? Wow. And I kind of was, uh, I had a young daughter, two and a half year old daughter. Then. And I, I think, I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll stay, I'll just hunker down and make sure that I spend lots of time with her, make sure that she's doing okay and sees dad plenty. And I didn't really go out much for about a year. And then I started getting calls from people to do work again. Warren Cucurulo asked me to do an album with him, uh, him and Vinnie Colliuta. So we did this trio thing called Thanks to Frank. And then uh, another guy, another band called Alphaville, which is a big uh, Berlin-based German electro band, asked me to get involved with them. So I worked with them in their Berlin studios for a while. And then Belinda Carlisle asked me to join her band. And that, and then suddenly I realized that I was back up and running again, you know. And that was about 95, 96 time. And from that time onwards, it, everything seemed to gather more and more momentum till um, John Paul Jones contacted me and asked me to do his trio. 
and it just it just sort of kept on a pace you know um with various projects but i never th- i never thought about being an artist again until a couple of years ago when thomas weber uh, inside out records suggested it to me right and i hadn't thought about it because you know i, I remember being called up by Trevor Horn in the 80s after the split up of Kajagoogoo. And he said, come down to my studio, I wanted to talk to you. So I went into his studio and there was he, there was, to- there was um, Trevor Horn and Steve Lipson sitting in the main studio at Psalm. And I brought my demos along. And I'd been working with a guy called Brian Robertson who was uh, the guitarist from Thin Lizzy. And we'd written some. I'd written some songs, and he, he'd we'd demoed them together. And Trevor and uh, and uh, Steve Lipson just kind of tore these songs apart. And I figured, you know what, I'm not. I'm not. Made, I'm not cut out to be a solo artist. <laughs> Until you know, later on, these twenty odd years later, and suddenly I'm got a record deal I'm 54 I've got, <laughs> got a record deal I've got an audience I've got people asking me my opinions about things so things have really gone full circle in a in a what it's a generation really 20 years well the first time I got wind of you and started knowing you by name musically if I can recall this is with the Steve Hackett stuff and the live performances and you know, the way you play and sing and all the stuff that you do on stage, it's as captivating as all the other musicians on stage. And a lot of times a bass player is in the background, you don't notice them, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. And and so it's like, well, who's that guy? You know, then, then you start to see, well, he's on all these <laughs> he's on all these records and I, you know, oh, obviously I've heard him before a million times. So, you know, how did you get in with Steve Hackett and sort of down that road then with Steve Wilson and, and now you know, being with those bands kind of all the time? I think uh, in life, cycles and repeats um, of events are very important. They, they're very much a part of what makes the world go round, metaphorically and literally. And, you know, Kajagoogoo was a, was a band that wouldn't stay dead. Uh, and I did a reunited thing for... MTV a few years about 10 years ago maybe longer and I just finished doing a, a reunited tour with that project when I got off the plane and I thought I'm not doing this anymore I'm done with this we've done this this was fun and I want to finish on good terms with these guys and the telephone rang I was coming back from Heathrow Airport literally coming back from doing the last show with that band Steve Hackett called me up and he said, Nick, it's Steve Hackett here. Would you be interested in joining my band? <laughs> and I said, wow, Steve, you know, that's fantastic. Of course, I'd love to. You know, a big fan of his music, both as a soloist and as part of that amazing ensemble. And uh, kind of it galvanized a new direction for me. I mean, I'd written, I'd worked with quite a few of the, shall we say, the classic rock and the and the progressive rock glitterati over the <laughs> years. I'd worked with John Paul Jones. I've worked with Steve Howe. I've worked with Rick Waitman. But nobody had really taken me 
to their heart as part of that genre until I started touring extensively with Steve Hackett. And I think that was the beginning of something quite different. Uh, maybe the seeds of credibility, I don't want to sort of speak out of turn, but maybe before I was seen as a bit of a disposable pop artist. Uh, and then suddenly overnight, something crystallized in the eyes of a, dem a demographic, shall we say. Yeah. And I was regarded as this um, strangely credible musician. <laughs> that is funny. That's funny how things work out like that. That's really, that's it's really interesting. All to do with perception. Yeah. Uh, and if you want to be successful in the music industry, you don't have to be that great. All you have to do is be perceived in the right way. Right. So now with the Mute Gods, I was, you know, wanted to get to that, obviously. That's the new album, the new band. I, I guess you said before, earlier that Thomas Weber, you know, came to you and said, why don't you do something? Did he suggest the band or that you took it from there and reached out to those guys, you know, Roger King and, and Marco Miniman, or how do they work? He didn't present me with anything. He just said, you should be doing more. Why aren't you doing something? And I said, okay, well, let me think about it. I said, are you offering? And he said, yeah. Hmm. Um, and then other labels started to get interested too. Other, other labels made some tacit offers. But to be honest, my relationship with Thomas is so good. I always felt that with record, record labels, you need a key man. And it needs to be your A&R man because he's your point of contact with the label. And if you've got a good relationship there and the rest of the team are solid, then, you, then that's something really worth fighting for, something worth holding on to. So I, I, you know, I pursued that. I thought, I thought about it. I thought about what he had said. And I kept, I, <laughs> I kept on coming up with these ideas for names of bands, and he thought I was testing him all the time. <laughs> I, came, I, came, I said at one time I sent him a, an email. I said, I've come up with a name for a band called Oberon's Wake. And he, <laughs> said, he said, are you taking the piss out of me? He said, you cannot call your band Oberon's Wake. <laughs> 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 I said, okay, 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 I'll, come, I'll get back to you, I'll get back. And then I said to him, I've written a song called Jesus Thinks You're a Fuckwit. And he said, you cannot put a track out called Jesus Thinks You're a Fuckwit. I am going to do that, though. I have written a song called Jesus Thinks You're a Fuckwit. That's a brilliant title. Yeah, it's a good song, too. I wrote it for the, uh, Westboro, I wrote it for the Westboro Baptist Church. And... Uh, I'm going to put it on the next album. That's too funny. Yeah, so, you know, it's that's kind of really... I don't think anything is ever signed, sealed and delivered, and it's down to how much brain power you put behind it. It's down to how much energy you actually put into working out how you're going to move this thing forward. Um, and actually, you know what? This has just been a lot of thinking, really. A lot of thinking about... Have I really got something to say? Okay, if I've got something to say, what is it? Um, can I can I make that into an album? Can I make that into three albums? Right. Uh, you know, it's sort of been doing a lot of thinking. 
So did Roger King sort of come from the Hackett work and, and Marco come from the Stephen Wilson work and, and that type of thing? Well, that's exactly right. But I, I mean, um, I kind of hadn't asked Marco at all because he'd been in the back of my mind um, from the moment I started to conceptualize um, Roger was the first person I spoke to because I said to I decided to I didn't want to produce the album myself because I felt writing the material and arranging the material would be a big enough responsibility and also do you know what I'm not I'm not really at the vanguard and the cutting edge of production I haven't been doing a lot of it I've I've got ideas and I can mix stuff and I, I know how I want stuff to sound but Roger is a tremendously gifted production engineer, um, mastering engineer. And then on top of that, he's a genius musician. Uh, and I felt he would be somebody who would be, be very honest with me about whether this was going to be good enough. Right. So I wrote a bunch of stuff and I said, why don't we check out I, I sent him Jesus thinks you're a fuckwit and he said I love this <laughs> and I said okay that's for the next album Thomas doesn't want to put it on this one he said oh alright then so I sent him another song the first song we started working on real time was a piece called Praying to a Mute God and uh, I sent it to him as a completely arranged written song and then he extemporized it and produced it up to the stage where it was ready to send to Marco. And I, I got a whole bunch of songs together before I, I, in fact, I got the whole album together before I even asked Marco. Um, and then earlier this year, I said to Marco, we were playing each other's stuff. We were on the t tour bus after the, one of the shows in the States with Stephen Wilson. And we just started, you know, he said, you know, I'll show you mine if you show me, you know, I'll show you yours if you show me yours, sort of thing, you know. And so we were drinking a few beers and swapping uh, demos. And he's, I played him my stuff and he said, wow, oh, this is great. And I said, would you be interested in playing on it? And he said, sure, you know. And uh, so I figured that that was a nice tr nice trio there. Even though there's other drummers on the record, Marco plays on most of the tracks, and Roger plays on most of the tracks. Was this your first time singing lead? It's the first time singing lead since Kajagoogoo. Yeah. Was that hard to get back into, or having not done it for so long? I was unsure about whether I'd be good enough. I think it was a confidence thing. Um, and then... I decided that I was going to push for it because um, if I, I I wanted it to be that way, and if it wasn't good enough, I was going to go down burning with it. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, so this is this is okay. Listen, I'm taking all my clothes off now, and I'm running through the streets naked, and everyone can point and laugh if they want, but somebody might notice I've got a huge cock. <laughs> I'm always amazed with this genre in particular. It's sort of unique where. A lot of the guys that play uh, instruments play every instrument or multiple instruments. And then when they do a solo album, they sing as good as every singer. You know, the talent there is somewhat uh, overwhelming when you when So it wasn't really a surprise because it's like, well, of course he can sing. You know, <laughs> of course he can. It was never my instrument of choice. Yeah. 
you know, I, I, I was blackmailed into singing by the other members of Kajagoogoo after Limal left. Uh, they said to me, if you be the new lead singer, we'll buy you a Chapman stick. Then you can be the new lead singer and Chapman stick player. <laughs> so that, no, that's a deal. You know, that was right. that. Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> so, you know, I, I learned to play Chapman stick and become a front man at the same time. But no, I'm still learning. You know, this is, this is a lot of fun. Um, even though the material, the subject matter is a little disgruntled, I, I'm really enjoying it so much so I've started work on the second album. Well, I want to talk about some of the songs um, because now that I've gotten a sort of a background on other songs that you've written already for the second album, yeah. uh, you know, a, a title like Night School for Idiots doesn't sound so out of place, but that's a that's you know lyrically that's a funny title what is something like that about it's autobiographical um and uh, when i had written the song i had to talk to my wife because i said look honey this is a song i've written like many songs it had to have a place of you know concept and all the rest of it but it's about how i felt once it's not how i feel now <laughs> not, not only is it a play, how I felt once, but it's how I felt once before I met you. And uh, and it was. It was. It's a song written about the breakup of a relationship that I had once, and uh, I, I I ended the relationship for what for reasons I thought were very good and noble at the time. But after I realised I'd finished the relationship, I felt like a complete idiot. And so the song. Uh, was written on the basis of so many guys who let the right one go or think they've let the right one go and at that time I thought I had there's a lot of what I think is a little a tears for fears influence at times on the album is that something you've noticed or been told mentioned before no I'm, I'm, I can't say that I'm cognizantly influenced by that band though I think they're totally fantastic um, I, it's hard to say what we're influenced by or yeah, not yeah. influenced by well I wonder if that's sort of the 80s pop sensibility may be coming in I'd uh, say into so. the music I'd say that's more what it is yeah particularly like the uh, the final track uh, oh. father daughter that that's incredible and really sort of different um, what's the story behind that song I guess maybe you and your daughter if I can guess yeah, I, I wanted to write a song um, with her in mind, but also I've always wanted to say sorry to her for the breakup of of the marriage to her mother. And she's 24 now. She's an adult and she's a stunningly beautiful woman and with an, a, an extraordinary talent, really. Uh, but I wanted to write this song to tell her that I was sorry and things hadn't turned out the way I wanted them to. But I saw it very much in three sections, referring to her coming into my life as a child and me saying sorry the way things turned out. And then her response to me um, and saying that she was sorry the way things turned out. And then... It's projecting into the future the time when all parents have to say goodbye to their children when they die. So there's the idea of the deathbed and uh, I'm sorry I have to go. And that's the way things should be because it shouldn't be the other way around. And sometimes it is the other way around. 
so when I wrote that, I said to her, I've written first and third verse, and I want you to write the second verse. And she did, and it blew me away. The lyrics were very powerful. She didn't pull any punches. And it was almost like clearing of the air in a song and the reaffirmation of our love for each other. Now, there's a female voice. Is that hers or who is singing? Yeah, that's her. Wow. Yeah, she's amazing. That's great. Yeah, she's just she's just amazing. That's awesome, man. That's really cool. Um, are you taking this band out on the road? Any plans for some shows? It's too early to know. If there's an interest, I'll do something with it. Um, but not till the second album. I don't want to go out and ha only have one album to play right. from. I'm not playing any covers. Um, so I want to have at least two albums with the material to which, you know, to put a set together. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. And you're still currently touring with uh, Steve Hackett, correct? I'm touring with Steve Hackett and Steve Wilson. <laughs> right. And I think both are coming back to the States. Yes, they are. I'm, I will be coming back to the States with Stephen Wilson this year. Um, but I won't be coming back with Steve Hackett because Ruina Stoltz is doing that. Uh, but I'll probably be going doing some more stuff with Steve Hackett later in the year. All right, good. We'll have to catch you. Actually, we met once at uh, a Steve Hackett show in uh, Florida. I think it oh, was right. a year or two ago. So are you are you in Florida now? I am. And what's the weather like there? Uh, hot, always. It's always hot. And humid. I have a friend who lives in Florida. Do you ever travel? I mean, uh, outside of touring, or it's only when you're on the road? Well, I travel so much that I try to keep any other traveling to a bare minimum. Right. When I get home, I don't like to go out much. Uh, but no, I've been to Florida a few times per purely from work base. Musically, you're kind of really in many directions, and now you're sort of doing, you know, prog stuff. What do you like to listen to when you're not? being a musician classical music really okay i love i love uh i love all classical music oh actually that's not true i'm not a big fan on opera i love choral music i love mozart and all the greats mozart's piano concertos i think is my favorite if i had to pick one body of work his his piano concertos are just stunning but, you know, I, I love all classical music. I love a lot, a lot of modern classical players like um, uh, Patrick Hawes, um, Carl Jenkins. I, 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 I'm a little bit bored of listening to music per se um, uh, in the rock genres because um, there's not a lot of great new stuff. Uh, but classical music is always... Uh, always playing in my house. Nice. Well, listen, man, it was really great to finally talk to you. I love the album. I love everything you do. Well, thank um, you. Of course, um, when you're here with Steve Wilson, hopefully, you know, we can see you. I might be catching the New York show. Oh, which, cool. Which, which will cool. be great. Well, Happy New Year, Roy. You too, man. Great to talk to you. Yeah. All right, I'll be in touch. All the best. I'd like to thank Nick for the interview. We're going to close with the title track off of Mute God's album. For more information and upcoming interviews, please check theprogreport.com, follow us on Facebook, at the Report on Twitter, 
or download the podcast from iTunes. Thanks. Thanks.